From victim to victor, to a voice for renewal and regeneration, let's meet the young man to whom that voice belongs. I'm Garland McWaters, and this is The Spirit of Leading. In 2009, Emeka Naka was an aspiring defensive end playing semi-professional football for the Oklahoma Thunder. Then, he suffered a life-altering spinal cord injury in a football game. In this episode of The Spirit of Leading, Emeka will explain how he came to live a new normal and become the inspiration of a growing fan base. Nearly 300,000 people in the United States are living with the after-effects of spinal cord injuries and more than 17,000 are injured each year. And it can happen to just anyone, even Superman. You remember that Christopher Reeve, the actor who played Superman in four films between 1978 and 1987, suffered a spinal cord injury when he fell from a horse in 1995, and that left him a quadriplegic. He went on to champion spinal cord research for the rest of his life. Like Reeve, Emeka has chosen to make the most of his circumstances, and that's what makes him a victor. Emeka, thank you so much for joining us on The Spirit of Leading. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's often the case that a traumatic or catastrophic event can throw someone into a spotlight, like it has you a little bit. But each story has a background, and there's a before and there's an after. And I'm wondering... Uh, what it was like uh, for you growing up? What was your life like before that play when you suffered that debilitating spinal cord injury? Man, just even right now, just thinking about it. You know, it's, it's a good question because I don't think about it enough, actually. Um, but growing up, I was always the kid that got in trouble, um, just had fun. Um, I love people, and that was no different when I was younger. I would, you know, find kids that in my classroom that I could laugh with, and if I could find a kid in the classroom that I could laugh with, you can guarantee that we were going to get in trouble. And so that was basically my existence from in grade school to elementary to middle school. I actually uh, spent some time in Nigeria after getting in trouble. Uh, my parents wanted me to get a little taste of home, and so I lived in Nigeria for two and a half years when I was at 13, 14, 15, came back. I went, I finished my high school and my college, um, or my high school in Georgia, started college um, there, and then I moved out to Tulsa, Oklahoma to finish college. And I remember being in, or at ORU, um, I was the guy that would sneak out of my class to sneak in other classes. And I would answer questions, and I remember students like, you know he's not in this class, right? And um, man, I, I was just the guy that got into a lot. I mean, as tall as I am, I'm, I, I'm six five. You know, I was the enforcer in my group of friends. That was my nickname. Um, and I just really enjoyed being, you know, this guy that took care of business and took care of people. It was no secret that Ameka was the the big guy. You know, mm -hmm. That's what I remember, just being the big guy. Now, that really hasn't changed in a lot of ways because uh, you've made yourself a big guy uh, to a lot of people in different kinds of ways. Uh, but one thing that's always interested me about people who go through traumatic experiences like you have is that at that moment when that kind of happens to you, like back that night that uh, you were hitting that uh, in that football play and you realized something's wrong, 
what goes through your mind the first few days and weeks after an injury like that about what the rest of your life might be like? If I'm honest, when something like that happens, you almost, your body and your brain's response to trauma is almost to like block it out. And so you enter denial and you enter into a place where you are trying to make sense of something that makes no sense. And so I can remember even being in my hospital uh, room and hearing the machines beeping in the middle of the night and just thinking that this has got to be a dream. Like, and for the first couple of weeks, that's what every night was like, was believing that this is a dream and that I'm going to at some point wake up and this not be like real. That time when it happened, you know, I have my friends there, I've got my family there, but it was still tough. You know, it's, people were there, but I still felt alone um, because I couldn't really explain what's happening because um, I didn't know what was happening. Um, I didn't know anything about spinal cord injuries. I knew nothing about what the process would be. All I know is that I was playing football and a second after this hit, I couldn't move my legs and I couldn't really move my hands. Um, and so how do you make sense of, you know, you know, an action that for 21 years, you know, I've been able to do and mm -hmm. in the blink of an eye, I can't do it. And my, you know, my brain hasn't caught up to the physical aspect of it. And so it's, it's hard. You don't, you don't make sense of it. Um, and I think I've seen that in individuals that have experienced loss, you know, it's like, no, this is not real. My loved one is gonna you know, come walking through that door and I'm gonna wake up out of this nightmare. You know, my kid did not just pass away. Like, I'm not burying my son, you know. It's, it's an altered reality that it takes time for us to really catch up to. Mike, to tell our listeners that we're actually recording this uh, podcast in the Magic City Books in the Algonquin Room. And uh, one of the, I've done several podcasts in this room, but the first one I did was with uh, the founders of the Tulsa Literary Coalition and the ones who started Magic City Books, uh, Jeff Martin and Cindy Halsey. And, uh, and it was actually before we, they opened, but it wasn't long after they opened that Cindy was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Mm and passed just a few months after that. And as you were talking about relating this to they're there, then they're not there, I kind of went back to that because it's almost kind of eerie thinking about what well, she was just sitting across the table from me like you are now, mm -hmm. and, and was such a profound influence in this community, and then we're without her. And it takes, like, uh, it takes time to go through that kind of an experience and get used to this new way this yeah. new situation how did you make that transition for yourself as you started kind of working through what was in what was undeniable about your future uh, to get to a different place i can tell you that the first three months were some of the hardest months uh, ever because i'm adjusting to all of this stuff happening but the next seven months after I got out of the hospital would be the hardest months of my entire life because 
while I was in the hospital, it was, you know, my goal was to get out of the hospital. That's my, I'm working hard to do that. I'm, there's the light at the end of the tunnel. And there was an expectation that my life would be back to normal once I left the hospital. Then that day came, and that in itself is just like another wave that is pounding in a sense of like, oh, you thought that everything was going to be back to normal. No, this is normal. Or that, like, I haven't even been able to find what the bottom, what rock bottom is yet. And so I get out of the hospital, and things were just difficult because at this point, people have stopped coming around. There's not as much attention on me. People got to pick up their own lives. And I struggled. I mean, emotionally, it was difficult because I don't know how to navigate this world. Um, Socially, even more difficult because here I am, a person that is a person of the people. And now I am in a place where there are no people. And I don't even know how to get out. Like, how do I ride the bus? How do I interact? How do I get out of bed? Um, I, they, you know, I was given a wheelchair, but I hadn't figured out how, to, I haven't mastered how to drive it, um, and much less how to get around with it. And so that beginning time, I think for me, I found myself completely exposed, um, like a turtle without a shell. And when you are a turtle without a shell in a briar patch, you do anything to protect yourself. And I think I began to try to cognitively distance myself from what was happening. I tried to cognitively distance myself from the emotions of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And so I'm watching, like I'm not watching reality TV because I don't want to see people doing things that I feel like I could be doing. And so I'm watching cartoons or I'm watching Animal Planet. You know, I'm a man of faith and so I, I had this position where when do I begin to ask God these heavy questions? Um, and a friend of mine, about seven months in, I'm kind of spiraling. Because, I, I, again, I, don't, I really don't even know what loss of control is because I guess I have to feel in control to feel like I've lost control. And that I never felt like I had any control after my accident. And so I get invited to go and hang out at a youth group and honestly, I said yes because I didn't want to stay at home. Like, I just wanted to get out of the house. And so I go, and one day turns to two days, and things start to, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten a way to get out of my house, but more importantly, out of my head. And I kind of just stuck with that. And so I volunteered for a couple years and then really just started to find my footing in working with young people, and I think there's where I found purpose again, and even more found purpose within my accident, um, or purpose within my pain, I'll say it like that, where I'm now able to use some of these lessons that I'm learning and pour it back into other people. Mm -hmm. Since then, I've just been rolling to the
recently heard a phrase that said, life doesn't happen to us, we happen to life. It kind of flips around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, How would you say that might apply in some cases to your situation? A similar quote that I've had that I kind of took to heart was, I don't want to wait for things to happen. I want to make things happen. Mm -hmm. I didn't really grasp that until, again, I'm, I'm starting to, I'm spending some time with these kids and now I'm starting to think about, you know, will I go back to school? Should I go back to school? I'm talking to these kids about school. Maybe I should go back to school. What am I waiting for? I should go back to school. I don't want to go back to school. I'm going back to school. And so it was for me like, okay, now it's time to start to make some things happen. Um, don't just wait for it. And so it really was trying to take the reins, take, take hold of my life. And I'm even, I'm still in process. I mean, I'm, I've got the reins. I'm still trying to get control. But for the most part, it really was controlling the controllables and controlling the things that I could, can't control. That was a term, that's a term in football called control the controllables. And when you, when you play a team sport, it's drilled in you because, again, as a unit, we have a singular goal. As an individual, you have a singular goal, but it's tied to everyone else or it's contingent on everyone else right. doing their mm-hmm. thing. And so you got to control the controllables. I can't worry, as a defensive end, I can't worry about what the safety is doing. Like, I've got to put pressure on the quarterback and put the quarterback in an uncomfortable position for the safety to do what he's got to do. When I found myself in this position in life where my life basically just went bankrupt, and while there's a lot of things that I can't do now where you know I can't stand up, I can't play football, like those are things that are out of my circle of control. And so I really start to focus on what are the controllables. Um, and the controllables were, you know, my ability to talk, think, um, show up. And then we're talking about a time in where I wasn't independently mobile. Um, I'm relying on bus transit, city transit. I'm relying on people with cars, trucks that would load me up. And so if things were to come that I could go to, then I do what I can. I wake up in the morning. I feed myself with positivity. I feel like anger about a situation or circumstance based that I'm in. I process it and try to move off of it. I read different books. Um, You know, I showed up for the kids and just kept showing up. Mm -hmm. And these were the things that I could control. As far as what was gonna happen later in my life, even I couldn't control that. What I can control is casting a vision for it and trying to walk out the steps today to make a difference for tomorrow. Um, that's what I could control. I'll tell you this too. The hardest time for me was in that first two, three years because I spent a lot of time looking back. Mm-hmm. And in that time, what healing was for me was going back to the way life was. And so I'm thinking constantly about what I was doing, what I could have been doing, what I should be doing. And I finally got to a place where it was like those, like all of those could, shoulds, woulds, 
are in the circle of uncontrollable. Who I am, what I'm doing, and who I am being is in the circle of control. The hardest part of my journey was letting go. Mm-hmm. And not only letting go of what I thought I should be doing, letting go of what I did and what I felt or where I felt my life supposed to be. Because I do believe that sometimes our circumstances, and one thing is this to our, all you, the listeners is that life is hard. It really is. And to anyone that says it's been easy, like, just wait, you know? Right. But um, one thing about it is that I think that we make life harder when we, like our circumstances are in itself are hard enough, but I think the problem that most people have is not their circumstances themselves, but is their circumstances against the backdrop of what they think it's supposed to be. And so, you know, if I talk to a 30-year-old, and I'm going to use this reference because I was just talking to a friend of mine, I'm a 30-year-old single female who is not married and doesn't have kids. Like, a friend of mine, she's very stressed about that whole situation. Mm-hmm. I've got another friend who is 30 years old, single, no kids, and is thriving, loves her career, loves her job. And the only difference between the two of them is that one thinks that she's supposed to be married with kids at 30, and the other one is just living her life for what it is right now. And for me, the same thing, I had to let go of what I thought a Mekanaka's world is supposed to be at 21, 22, 23, and really just start living in the now of what it is. Because one thing is that, for me, I had to let go of what was so that I can embrace what is. And when I embrace what is, I can now start to create what could be. Because the future is not created in the past. Is created in the present. Now, our past influences where we are today, but it doesn't dictate where we're going tomorrow. Exactly. Um, and so it really was about letting go and just being. I'd say that's advice for any stage in life. Yeah. Because yeah, I can remember back into those those years and going through similar things. And here I am much older in my life now, but still uh, relating to that is that uh, the future is still undefined and exciting. Yeah. And I'm certainly uh, excited about what those possibilities might be. As you look at the back on making that transition, kind of coming to that new sort of awareness of what the future could possibly be, uh, how did that uh, translate into your decision to start working with young people and kind of what's where you are now and what you're doing now? I found myself in a place where once I started working with young people, it was fulfilling. Um, Pouring out has a way of pouring in, you know, and it was really gratifying having a feeling of that I'm making a difference. Mm -hmm. And it necessarily wasn't like a big global difference, but, you know, making a difference to one, you know, it almost feels like you make a difference to all. And I heard in a TED Talk, a a guy gave a TED Talk, and in it, he said that there are over 6 billion people in this world. 
and we're all trying to change the world. But what if we looked at one person's world and tried to make a difference in it? Mm-hmm. And if you change one person's world, have you not changed the world? And that completely changed everything for me because now, again, I found purpose in not only just working with kids, but I found purpose in the random meeting of a cashier. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can affect your day positively, I'm affecting the world positively. Right. And so I have kept, you know, I kept doing what has felt good. You know, you get rewarded when you do good with kids. And so what's interesting is that I'm in a place of life now where I'm having to go backwards to go forward, where I have done a lot of good work and I'm going to go back to being that turtle without its shell in a prickly patch. When you experience trauma, you look for armor to protect yourself. And a lot of people, a lot of us, we sometimes our armor is destructive. You know, that's why we are the most overly medicated, obese, um, and addicted society out there. You know, Brene Brown says that. And so I think with those things, we're looking for armor to protect us. Now, for me, I'm in a place right now where I recognize that the armor that I reached for was positive, was good armor. Um, working with kids, uh, speaking to people, um, trying to elevate as an individual. Today, I'm still looking back and thinking to myself, that is armor. And I'm in the, currently in my own process of trying to find out who the armorless turtle is. Interesting. Um, and that's a, that's a hard process because it's scary. It's scary right now to even think about do I do the good work that I do because it's good work and I'm wanting to do it or am I doing the good work that I'm doing because I'm running from myself? And so... I'm currently trying to find that out by getting a little bit more quiet with myself Mm -hmm. um, and going over my own thoughts and making sure that I am okay with being exposed. Because it's not about covering up in the like prickly patch or the briar patch. It's more so about getting myself out of the briar patch and being more exposed. Well, finding the, the authentic you yeah. in that sense. You know, who am I really? And uh, in my desire to to heal or to not hurt, did I protect myself in ways that that, that kept me from having the opportunity to really find out who I am? Mm-hmm. And once I find that person, now I can take those steps forward again and be even more powerful and have more impact and and more sure of myself and, and, and feel even better about myself than I've ever felt. That's exactly the journey that I'm on right now because there are things that have been happening, great things happening in my life right now, and I'm even right now deciding, I'm taking a little, not a sabbatical, but I'm just spending some more time with myself sure. um, before I jump into the new year with a full schedule mm-hmm. of speaking and traveling and things like that. 
introspection and self-reflection is a part of healing, a part of growing. Mm-hmm. And we all have to do that. And I, I think that people who don't spend some time examining their own life and their own motives and passions cheat themselves a little bit into maybe finding a more fulfilling uh, future you know, that they uh, really can uh, prosper in and feel good about. I want to be the right person, mm-hmm. you know, I, because if I gain the world and lose my soul, I don't, that's not good for me or anyone that's under me and that is looking at me as a pillar of hope. Right. And so I work as a therapist. And so I am starting to recognize some things and again, wanting to shore up some things in my own self and face myself because I do believe that that self-reflection, that introspection, I believe that that is the beginning of growing. And I think that too many of us don't do it. That, you know, the self-assessment is where it all happens. And we spend way too much time running from ourselves rather than asking ourselves some hard questions, getting some hard answers, and making adjustments. That's important for all, any, anyone in any walk of life to really reflect on and think about uh, because people become leaders in a lot of different ways. Some people have a hunger to want to be out front and be the leader, so they push themselves out there and they, uh, they attract uh, followers in one way or another. Uh, other people are, are sort of reluctant leaders. They find themselves in a situation where they kind of have to take a step forward and other people are looking to them to take that step and they'll follow along with them to be the first one to do it. And other people uh, become leaders because people believe in them in some way and they're, they're very quiet, but people sort of like push them to the front. They say, here, you go do this and we'll follow you. But what really makes a person a good leader, uh, in my mind, and that's why I call it the spirit of leading, is that they lead from a place of understanding how important that role is. By definition, a leader is that person that people follow. And so if people are following you, you have an implicit responsibility for their their welfare. They have some sort of confidence in you that they're going to be okay under your leadership, that you're going to treat them well, they're going to be, they're going to thrive, or they're going to be protected in some way. And a lot of times, I think uh, leaders get out there for the ego part of it. I'm out front, and I, and I get to be the person in charge, and others take that leadership role very, very personally and very, very seriously. You know, from what you're t- talking about today, uh, it's a very important lesson for, I think, a lot of people in leadership to hear, is that you can't move into leadership without having this very private place that you go to reflect about what that leadership means and what it means to the people who are looking to you with that kind of hope and expectation that they'll be okay with you. Uh, Who are the people you've looked to to provide that kind of leadership for you? So when I read my Bible and I look at the life of Jesus Christ, that is someone that I look at and leadership of how he dealt with people. And honestly, it was just how he was unafraid to cross aisles or go meet people where they're at. So in one regard, that's someone I look to. 
in other regards and sometimes, again, my kids, the kids that I am responsible for leading, they give me leadership tips as well because I don't think I ever want to lose the innocence of like being childlike, you know, especially like younger, the younger you go in the sense of kids don't, are courageous and they have no fear. Um, And so I look for leadership tendencies in a lot of different places. And I I did not used to be a reader. I'm not that guy, but I'm learning to read and learning to put good things in to get good things out. Even my father, my fa- I looked at my father as someone who we are very, very different, completely opposite. And even in him, there are things that I see that are like, okay, that is good leadership qualities. Even in people that I've not gotten along with, I've seen, I think leadership is one of those things where it leaves clues, good leadership and bad leadership. And so for me, I guess it's a lot of different people that I look at. One of the things that impressed me about uh, the time we first met was that uh, you have a, a calming presence, I thought, about you. You seem to me to say, uh, I'm going to be okay. And of course, you know, when, when uh, we look at anyone who has suffered a, a, a serious injury and is, and is uh, restricted in some way, there's, it's sort of, a, it's sort of a, a larger than life, it's an exaggerated presence, at least it is when I see it. Exaggerated in the sense that I think, okay, here's a person that is finding their new way of living and they seem to be finding a way to be okay about that. And here I am with, with none of the restrictions that they're dealing with, and how am I using what I naturally have to, to move myself forward? And that sort of brings back to me the idea that every, each and every one of us, we are all sort of the center of our own story. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we are the, we are, our world is the only world we know. We're the center of our own story. We're the hero of our own story, and we're the victims, if we want to be, of our own story. And how do we get past that? I opened with the phrase, victim to victor to voice. And, and I'm wondering, how are you using your voice? And what's the message you want to tell people about the things you learned about yourself that might transfer to them and encourage them? So to speak to your point, I think when people see me or anyone else for that matter that is going through like a difficult circumstance and to their eye is overcoming or whatnot. I think what that does is it it jars, like it it jars that everyday get up, go to work, like that mm-hmm. cycle or system that we're of life that we're in. It it jars it to where it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like if that person can do it, then I, you know, what am I what's my excuse or whatnot? Which is not bad, but I think Again, it's only because for me, like my supposed shortcomings are on display. I can't hide my wheelchair. I can't hide the fact that I need help. I can't hide some aspects of vulnerability that I have to ask someone for help. Those things I can't hide. But just like all of us, I still have the fears that 
I live with that I fight every single day. I understand that with my story, there are aspects that are just different. There's a lot. There's, I mean, I again, I know my challenges. I know the ones that I have to fight every day. And I know that people around me don't have those same challenges every single day. And so I know that I am courageous in that regard. But I'm also courageous in the other regard of fighting the things that you don't see. I would want people to align themselves with that as well in the mm-hmm. sense of like, like, like I said earlier, life is just hard. And we are all doing it together. Just as much as you look to me as the beacon of hope, someone is looking to you as their own beacon. Well said. And with that, I think we'll just let people think about that. I do want to thank you so much for taking time just to come and visit with us and tell a little bit about your story. Uh, The spirit of leading is a message of hope. We not only do we lead others, but we lead ourselves as well. We lead our life and we live our lives to make it as the best it can possibly be. And I think that's what everybody just really wants every day is to feel good about who they are, to have good things happen to them, to love and be loved, and to, uh, to live kindly and gently with the people around them. When people hear your story, uh, in their own minds, they're hearing a little bit about themselves as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Uh, that's what my goal is. So. To, to share those stories. And we tell our stories and other people hear their stories in that story. And I think that's what brings us together. Like you said, we're all in this together, and we're all trying to do our very, very best. Well, I do want to wish you well, and uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about your career as it unfolds. And after you get out of the briar patch or the prickly patch and uh, come back around, I know you have a full schedule coming up and that you're entering into a period of, uh, of your professional life where you're going to be doing more speaking, perhaps. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing you someday on that big stage somewhere when uh, thousands of people are getting to hear your voice and hear your message and be encouraged by it. Thank you. If you're listening to this and you're looking for a speaker, I can be found um, at amecanaka.com or livebeyondlabels.com. Again, on Instagram as well as at amecanaka. And I'm just working to grow more and more as a speaker. I work every day as a therapist and work every day as as a mentor. So growing, growing, growing. Great, thank you. And we'll put those links on the uh, on the post page. Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story with us uh, on this episode of The Spirit of Leading. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, you remind us how precious uh, life is and how our health is and also that our spirits are strong. And, that, uh, and it reminds us also, too, that uh, really our bodies are a vessel. Uh, what really matters is the soul that occupies it, the spirit that occupies it and how big it is. We have this small body, we have this large, huge soul and spirit. So thank you so much to help us uh, remember those things and uh, we look forward to uh, what's next in your life and career. Well, that's it for this installment of The Spirit of Leading and I wanna thank you for listening. I also encourage you to recognize and appreciate anyone who demonstrates the spirit of leading at work and in the community. When you join the Empowered, you'll get a notification of my latest podcast or the latest posts in my weekly Empowering Thought series. So please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And until next time, I urge you to live empowered each and every day and unleash your creative energy. Encourage the spirit, enliven the heart, enlighten the mind, and enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters.